Okay, November 1st, 1755. Uh, this is going to be kind of a pivot point for this talk. This is one of the most uh, significant dates in Western culture that probably nobody knows anything about. It was a day that a, uh, an earthquake hit the city of Lisbon, Portugal. And um, so kind of to give you the structure of my talk, it's sort of in three parts. First part, I'm going to kind of set the historical background of Lisbon in the early 18th century. And then we're going to talk very specifically about this date and exactly what happened in Lisbon on that date. And then um, sort of some uh, theological, philosophical repercussions of that event. So that, that's kind of, the, kind of the structure of it. Um, first, here's a map of Portugal. And you can see uh, Spain's kind of trying to push it into the sea. <laughs> and, and actually, that, that's significant because Portugal did sort of get pushed into the sea. Um, it was established as a, as a country in 1143 A.D. Prior to that time, it had been uh, Phoenicians, Visigoths, Romans, the Moors. Lots of different people fought over it, but uh, it was established as a country in 1143. Um, it had sort of two golden ages. Um, the first was the Age of Discovery, which I'm going to talk about, and their their dominance of the sea. And the second was literally the golden age. It was, it was all about gold and the discovery of gold in, uh, in Brazil. So this fellow, this is Henry the Navigator, uh, Dom Henrique of Portugal, Duke of Vichau, and he was the son of the king, and he was instrumental in Portugal becoming a dominant seafaring nation. He was not a, he was not a navigator himself, but was a great patron of, uh, of, the, of navigation and promotion and development of various technologies to help them um, discover and become uh, dominant in maritime expo exploration. And one of the key, um, key things for this effort was this ship, which is a caravel. And this ship is modeled after the Portuguese fishing craft, um, up until this time, the ships, ocean-going ships, were large, square-rigged ships. And this ship was much more, was much smaller, was more nimble, and the most important technological advance, and it was a huge technological advance at this time, was this sail, which is called a Latin sail, L-A-T-E-E-N. And this allowed these ships to sail almost straight into the wind, which was a, was a huge, huge advantage at that time because these big square rig ships couldn't do that. And um, actually, Columbus, Columbus's ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Marie were, uh, were caravels. This fellow um, is Vasco da Gama, and he is probably the most famous Portuguese sailor. He... Um, discovered the sea route to India, um, sailed around the Cape of Good Hope, around the tip of Africa in 1498. And this led to uh, the first real golden age for Portugal and Lisbon. Um, here's a map of his route. And prior to this time, you had to go, you know, through the Mediterranean Sea, across Arabia, through Iran and Iraq, you know, down through India, was a very long, there were pirates in the Mediterranean, 
you know, very treacherous overland route, took a long time, a lot of effort. And with the discovery of this sea route to India, Portugal established all these ports along along the coast of Africa, all the way over to India and into Malaysia. And um, at that time, uh, the spice trade was really the primary economic driver of things. And pepper was the primary spice. Evidently, food in Europe was quite bland. And pepper was like gold. And so Portugal capitalized on this, this, sea, this sea trade, and it became from about 1500 to 1575, probably made Portugal the richest country in the world, and uh, Lisbon, Lisbon a part of that. So that was sort of its first golden age, this age of discovery when it developed the technology to form the sea route to Africa and, and dominate, dominate the, uh, the spice trade and other, other, many other products. Um, the next age is literally the golden age. It was all about gold. So um, Portugal discovered uh, Brazil in about 1500, but they didn't really discover gold there until 1690. And uh, the amount of gold they found there was just mind-boggling. Um, by 1720, the amount of gold in, that Portugal had brought over from Brazil was equivalent to all the gold that had been mined in the world in the previous three centuries. So, on top of diamonds and and other fine jewels, but gold was the big driver. Um, And this is the fella who spent it. (laughs) Uh, This is Zhao V, and he he ascended the throne at age 17, in about 1706 to 1750. So in that, basically the 50 years prior to the event of the earthquake. And, um, you know, it's a little bit of a stereotype to say this about royalty, but there are three things that a lot of, especially the old royalty were. They were entitled, they were spendthrifts, and they were promiscuous. And uh, this guy, he checked all three boxes. So, um, <laughs> so first, entitled, he... He was quoted as saying, my grandfather owed and feared, my father owed, I neither fear nor owe. So a little bit of an attitude there. Um, on, the, on, the, um, on the promiscuous side, he fathered dozens of children, uh, several by nuns, and he actually had the, he had the nickname of Ophiratico, lover of nuns. So he, he was quite active there. But... Uh, and the third, as a spendthrift, uh, a fifth of all the gold that came to Portugal went to the royal family. So they had, I mean, gold money was literally like water. And a lot of it was, was lavished um, upon the church. Um, this is what's known as a monstrance, and it's a uh, liturgical vessel that would be used for... Um, displaying like the sanctified host or, you know, an ossuary for some sort of relic. And that's solid gold, and those are real, those are real jewels. So um, a lot of this money was lavished upon the church. But probably his biggest sort of civic project, in, a, in addition to, well, I'm going to talk about this, but he collected, he had a library of 70,000 books. 
He was buying European masters like comic books. I mean, you know, money was not an object. So um, this is the palace at Marfra. And he was really sort of, I think, competing with the French and the building of Versailles, and they were somewhat parallel in the times they were built. This was um, started in 1717. Uh, took 32 years to complete, involved 50,000 stonemasons, carpenters, uh, and had 1,200 rooms. So quite an amazing palace. This is just north of, uh, north of Lisbon. And a traveler wrote Lisbon in 1750, he said, he who has not seen Lisbon has seen nothing. So it was a spectacular city, you know, in 1755. It would have rivaled... Um, London and Paris in terms of wealth, culture, the arts, and everything. But I don't want to leave the impression that it was, it was perfect. Um, it had a few flaws. Uh, <laughs> one of them being the, uh, the Portuguese Inquisition, which sort of mirrored the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, 200 almost, yeah, 200 years. Uh, and this is what's known as an auto de fe, which is a burning at the stake. And uh, a number of people met this fate, heretics, but probably the primary target for this persecution and the uh, Inquisition were what are known as crypto-Jews. And these were people, these were Jews who were forced to become Catholic, but were discovered to be practicing the old religion and um, you know even if you had a Hebrew scripture in your home you could be um, persecuted so some over this period some 40,000 people were either tortured exiled businesses ruined or um, met this fate so that was one of their flaws <laughs> another flaw was Portugal was uh, the Portuguese were instrumental in the slave trade. They were big, big slave traders. Um, the city also had a huge wealth gap. The uh, trickle-down theory didn't work too well. Um, the royalty had all this gold, but there was a lot of poverty. There was a big gap between the rich and the poor. Um, it was a somewhat insular society, sort of a little bit backwards, not, not really open to innovation. Um, and also... a, a I mean, it was a result, really, I think, of the Inquisition. I mean, they drove out a lot of their intellectual capital. Um, these, you know, a lot of the Jewish people who they exiled would certainly have been people who would have been valuable members of their society. So beneath this guilt of gold and wealth was um, sort of a dark underside. And that, this, I mean, this, not to single out Lisbon, I mean, London and Paris certainly um, would have similar, similar flaws. So that sort of sets the historical context, kind of the background, kind of what Lisbon looked like in the first part of the 18th century. So when we get to 1755, this incredibly opulent city. And now I want to get to the, um, that day, okay, of November 1st, 1755. And here I've got the four horsemen of the apocalypse, okay? Um, we're going to take a ride with them. Because it really was, um, it, it, were, it, was, it was an apocalyptic event. And you'll see how that kind of influences some philosophical and intellectual things later. But 
So on that day, um, the first thing that happened, they got hit with an earthquake. Okay. Then they got hit with a tsunami. Then they got hit with a terrible firestorm. And then after, to top it off, just for fun, there was some looting and pillaging. So um, I kind of want to walk you through these events. And I'll warn you, they're, they're, not, uh, they're not happy. Um, so first here, I've got a... told you we'd talk about plate tectonics. Um, sort of a model. And you know how you know, the Earth is formed of plates. And normally, they just sort of slide against each other and don't cause too much problems. But occasionally, they, they bind, Right? And, and form huge amounts of energy. Um, and that's what happened on this day. Um, this is, was a mega thrust earthquake, which they didn't have the Richter scale then, but they think it was an 8.5 to a 9.1 on the Richter scale, which is, you know, it's logarithmic. So that it's one of the biggest earthquakes ever recorded in human history. Um, equivalent of 475 megatons of TNT, 32,000 Hiroshima bombs, um, raise the ocean floor approximately 40 feet. So massive. Um, and here's a map of the epicenter. Um, happened about 60, 70 miles southeast of Lisbon. Um, affected an area of 5.2 million square miles. Um, was felt as far away as uh, Finland, 2,000 miles away. So just a massive earthquake. And this is 60 miles from Lisbon, which for an earthquake of that magnitude, you know, is extreme close proximity. So this is just a, a, a drawing of a ruined cathedral. Um, so I want to kind of paint a picture of that day. It was a, it was a calm day. It was in the 60s. Um, it was a Sunday, and it was All Saints Day, Okay which was a very special day of obligation in the Catholic Church. All good Catholics were expected to attend Mass on that day. And um, I think it's hard in sort of our post-Christian world to understand how much religion, like, imbued this city. Um, they said, like, one in six people, people were, were, was a religioso, was a cleric or a, or a nun or a, uh, a monk. And there were churches, you know, on almost every corner. There were uh, ceremony parades and religious days all year long. So, I mean, it just, it was a very pervasive part of their culture. So this day was a really special day of obligation. Um, and the earthquake hit at about 9.45 in the morning. So a lot of people would have been in church or on their way to church on that day. So this is just another a scene of the destruction. So um, three tremors hit um, about two to four minutes in duration, about a minute apart. Um, horrific destruction. I mean, you could imagine millions, millions of tons of rock, masonry, lumber came down on, upon these people. And um, you could hear screams of miser misericordia Deus, have mercy, God. People, the walking wounded, covered, you know, half naked and bloody, walking through the streets. Really um, a horrible apocalyptic sort of scene. Um, and this, this, is a, um, this is a slide I had up at the beginning. This is the Carmo convent in church. 
um, which you can see this part is still standing. The roof and everything came down in the earthquake. But this has been restored as a um, museum. And it's a beautiful cathedral uh, in Lisbon that you can, you can see today. So that was the first horseman. Second horseman was a tsunami. Um, not long after this, uh, the, earth, the tremors from the earthquake, it created these waves, which were actually a tele-tsunami, um, which is a tsunami that travels over 1,000 kilometers. Um, these waves were moving at up to 600 miles an hour when they were in the open ocean, you know, 50, 60 feet high. Um, fortunately, there is a spit of land sort of buffering Lisbon a little bit in the, the estuary for the Tagus River. So the, the, they didn't get the full force of it, but they got three waves, three waves that went up to 200 yards into the city, okay? Unfortunately, a lot of the people who had been in the earthquake, the survivors, they had rushed down to the quay to get away from all this destruction, right? And thousands of them were just washed, washed into the ocean. So the next horseman, here we have the fire. So it was a calm day, about 60 degrees, light breeze. It was perfect conditions for a fire. And again, you can imagine thousands of tons of combustible material, wood, draperies, curtains, clothing, all this stuff caught on fire. And this huge conflagration swept the city, uh, reaching temperatures of up to 1,000 degrees. And many of the people, who, survivors, were you know, maybe trapped or uh, were incinerated. So thousands of people died in this firestorm. Okay? Fourth horseman was a scene of looting. Um, all the prisoners were released, either released or they escaped because the prison fell down. Um, over 10,000 buildings in Lisbon were destroyed on that day. So, you know, massive destruction. Uh, and this, so there was looting and pillaging of private residences, churches, uh, even people going so far as uh, cutting earlobes and fingers off living people to get jewelry. Um, you know, just, I mean, you can, you can see the, the apocalyptic nature of this, this whole event. Um, and this is just a famous painting of it, the Allegoria of Taramato, did 1755 by Jacques Lama uh which is sort of an allegorical um, depiction, depiction of the event. So, loss of life. Um, you know, there are a lot of estimates, but sort of the forensic anthropologists have come up with this as being pretty, pretty accurate. Um, 25,000 in the earthquake, 7,000 from fire, 3,000 from the tsunami, and 5,000 later from injury and diseases that uh, were caused by the earthquake. So about 40,000 in total. And at that time, the population of Lisbon was about 200,000. So, you know, they lost basically um, a fifth of, their, fifth of their population on that day. So now I kind of want to I want to step into the sort of the third part of the talk, and this is more sort of the uh, intellectual 
theological, philosophical repercussions of, of the event. Um, so here you have a fire and brimstone preacher who I think looks a little bit like Lyndon Johnson. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, so, you, you, you know, all the books I, a lot of the research I did on this, all the books sort of revolve around this apocalyptic sort of theme. Um, this Gulf of Fire, the Great Lisbon Earthquake, or Apocalypse and the Age of Science and Reason. The Last Day, Wrath, Ruin, and Reason in the Great Lisbon Earthquake of 1755. The Wrath of God, the Great Lisbon Earthquake of 1755. So a lot of the clerics, they took this, uh, this opportunity to uh, go into the pulpit, and the Catholics... You know, uh, they use this as, you know, this is the wrath of God upon this sinful city. Um, sort of the Sodom and Gomorrah model. You know, the God did this to you because of your, you know, your, the, your, your wealth and promiscuity and all these, these things. The Protestant preachers use it as an opportunity to gig the Catholics. They said, no, this judgment upon your city because you're superstitious and you worship relics and so so you had, you had that stuff coming out. Of, you had that stuff coming from, from the pulpit. Um, but what I really want to talk about uh, is sort of this really neat dynamic between two uh, intellectuals of different different age and and what this what this event triggered. Um, and this first definition here, theodicy, is the vindication of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. And it's that age-old question of, you know, how can a good God allow something like this to happen to Lisbon? And spoiler alert, we're not going to answer the question of evil today. But we're going to talk a little bit about um, one man's answer and the other man's reaction to that. Um, So this is Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, who was a German uh, philosopher of the um, 17th century, polymath, um, wrote on philosophy, theology, mathematics, politics, law, physics, history, and philology. Uh, many credited him with discovering or inventing calculus and also with being the father of the modern computer. So, pretty smart guy. Um, but he, he wrote this book called Theodicy, and his premise, his basic premise was the universe that God has created is the best of all possible worlds. Okay, um, and I kind of want to look at his look at his rationale for that. So, the first three here. This is his rationale. God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent. God created the existing world, and God could have created a different world or none at all. And, you know, if you believe in God, I think you can kind of wrap your head around those. I mean, basically it says God is all powerful and God is all good. Okay. Get that. But it's uh, four and five that cause a little bit of problem. Because God is omnipotent and omniscient, he knew which possible world was the best and was able to create it. And because he is omnibenevolent, he chose to create that world. Therefore, the existing world, the one that God created, is the best of all possible worlds. So Leibniz basically was saying, you know, God is good and God is perfect, so whatever he created, that's just the way it is. I mean, he really kind of glossed over some things, right? You know, well, original sin, the devil, eh, you know, don't worry about that. It's just, you know, God knew what he was doing and this is the best, this is the best it can be. 
Well, that, and this is an idea that really uh, a lot of people kind of hung their hats on at that time, okay? It was, it was not, it was a sort of a common um, philosophical, theological strain of thought. But that really upset this guy. Um, this is Francois-Marie Arot. Pardon my French. Um, you probably know him better as Voltaire, okay? He was a French, uh, French intellectual, um, very prominent, you know, kind of a, I mean, a, a superstar, really, in the intellectual world. And um, in 1755, he had been banished. He was living in Geneva because he'd pissed off King Louis XV somehow. Um, he'd, been, he'd been banished to Geneva, and he was living up there. He was 60 years old. He lived to be three, so he was kind of at the peak of his, uh, you know, peak of his career. But he just could not live with Leibniz's explanation of, you know, why a good God would allow evil. And so he, uh, he did a couple of things. Um, the first thing he did was he wrote a poem. And he, he wrote this poem in December of 1755, okay? So the, the wound was really raw. And uh, it's called The Poem on the Lisbon Disaster. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's 180 lines. But I just want to read the first stanza and one other stanza to kind of give you a picture. It was a real visceral attack upon um, Leibniz's um, theory that all is well with the world. So this, this is the first part of it. Unlucky mortals, oh deplorable, deplorable earth, all humanity huddles in fear. The endless subject of useless pain. Come philosophers who cry, all is well. And contemplate the ruins of the world. Behold the debris and ashes of the unfortunate. These women and children heaped in common ruin. These scattered limbs under the broken marble. See the hundred thousand whom the earth devours. Torn and bloody, they are still breathing. Entombed beneath roofs, and they die without relief. From the horror of their suffering lives. So that gives you a little bit of the tone. And then I just want to read one other section where he specifically uh, sort of attacks Leibniz. Let me get to it here. So here it is. Okay. This is later, later in the poem. Leibniz taught me neither what invisible knots tie our little pleasures to such pain in this best of all possible worlds, this endless disorder and chaos of misfortune, nor why the innocent and guilty suffer the same under this necessary evil. I can't conceive any better how all is well. I am like a doctor. I know nothing. My apologies to any doctors in the audience. <laughs> I, I guess Voltaire, Voltaire didn't like doctors. Or he'd had a bad experience, but um, so but so this was a poem he wrote in 1755. But a few years later, um, he wrote a, this book, which is a great book, highly recommended. It. It's short, um, Candide. Okay, which was sort of his his prose expansion on this poem after he thought about it for a few years. And this is a great story about it's just biting satire. So Candide is this sort of minor German nobleman, and his mentor is Pangloss, his sort of teacher. 
And they go off on these, you know, these wild adventures, and they face every hardship. I mean, shipwreck, torture, they're enslaved, they, they starve, they get boils on their bodies, they, they visit the Lisbon earthquake. And this whole time, Pangloss is like, hey, all is well, right? <laughs> you know, God is perfect, and you know what we're going through? It's just, hey, you know, it's all good. And of course, um, Voltaire took the opportunity to just skewer Leibniz and his whole, um, you know, philosophy of optimism that that all is well, um, and uh, a couple of things. It's kind of interesting. Both Leibniz and Voltaire added words to our vocabulary. Um, Leibniz, the word theodicy, vindication of you know God, a, a good God in the face of evil. He 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 coined that word, and um, um, Voltaire. The word Panglossian comes from Voltaire, which means a person who's overly, overly optimistic after his, his main character. Um, and, you know, just a, a personal reflection, I think it's kind of interesting that um, Leibniz, who was definitely the Christian, devout Catholic, sort of got it wrong. And Voltaire, who was the, you know, at best a deist, um, if, if not an atheist agnostic, I mean, intellectual dude, he kind of got it right in a sense because Leibniz, like I said, he glossed over a lot in, in, in his philosophy of optimism. And Voltaire kind of called a foul and said, hey, I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I know it's not that. Okay? And when you read his, his poem in his book, it's sort of a crying out for that answer. And he doesn't answer it. I'm not, we're not going to answer it today. But... Um, I just think it's interesting that, that that contrast between sort of the one got it right and one got it wrong. Um, but I want to circle back around sort of in conclusion to um, Lisbon after the earthquake, okay? So it was totally decimated. Um, I didn't even talk about the economic losses. If you calculate the loss of all the books and jewelry and art and real estate and businesses... Uh, they say in equivalent dollars, it would be over a tr- well over a trillion dollar loss. Okay, just massive loss. They did rebuild. Um, it's a beautiful. It's a it's a beautiful beautiful city if you visit it today. Uh, but you know, it's it's not that old, or most of it, a great part of it's not that old by European standards. Old by our standards. But you know, a lot of the the main the main part of the city was rebuilt in the you know early or mid 18th century. So kind of young by European standards. But um, it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, in 1755, it was, like I said, it was every bit the equal of Paris or London in terms of wealth and prestige and power and, and all that. And it kind of lost all that literally overnight in this earthquake. Um, and there's a word in Portuguese, sodad, which means this melancholy, this longing, this sort of sadness for the past, for what they were. And even to this day, that, that, that you kind of get a little bit of that sense in Lisbon, and there's actually a form of music called fado, okay, which is this... My wife makes me listen to it. So. <laughs> no, it's very... It's a... It's this very plaintive, melancholy, sad sort of mourning over loss of this previous greatness. And actually, if you go to Lisbon, they have Fado 
uh, dinners where it's usually a woman is, is the voice and then a, a man accompanying her on, on Spanish. It's really beautiful music. It's haunting. It takes a little bit of, to get used to. But it, no, it's, 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 it's all good. It's all good. So um, I want to I wanna, I wanna finish up. Um, if you didn't like my talk, I think I have something you're going to like. Um, oh, that, that's just the book I showed you, Candide. Okay, these are um, pastiche de natas, okay? And this is a little Portuguese um, pastry that it's really... It really has kind of an interesting historical background. So in the monasteries um, and convents back there in that time, they would use egg whites. The clergy would use egg whites to starch their, their clothing. I know we have some clergy here. You guys may want to re, re, uh, reinstitute that. But anyway, they had all these egg yellows left over, right? And so they, they didn't have anything to do with this. So they started making pastries. Um, these little custard pastries, pastiche de nada. And thanks to Sullivan University's culinary department, I have had a bunch of these made, which we will, we will pass out. Um, they're delicious little things. And if you ever go to Portugal, there's a place called Pastiche de Belém, which is just north of the city, which, uh, where they serve over 7 million of these a year. Okay, um, so they are delicious. Um, so anyway, if you, did, if you didn't enjoy my talk, you can enjoy the pastiche tenata. Thank you. Yeah, oh, 